Well, I want to welcome you to the May edition of The Gathering Storm. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Benware, and I have been asked to uh, take our listeners uh, through my new little book, uh, which is entitled Understanding the Book of Revelation, The Unveiling of Jesus Christ as Judge and Coming King. And in our study last time, we got as far as Revelation chapter 2, because we were taking time to look at uh, plotting our course as to how we interpret this book, which is really a, a critical element. Now, today we want to get right into it, and uh, hopefully you've done some reading in the book of Revelation uh, since we last were together. And uh, we want to look at the um, second division of the book of Revelation. As we observed last time, um, embedded in chapter 1 of Revelation is really the divine outline of this book, where Jesus said to the Apostle John, Write therefore the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which shall take place after these things. And in that command given by Jesus to John, um, the book of Revelation is seen to have three parts to it. The first part simply is comprising chapter 1, where John saw a vision of the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. The second part has to do with the churches, uh, the um, churches that belong to uh, the Lord Jesus. And then the majority of the book, which is where we're going to be spending our time uh, primarily today, is on the future events that are going to occur, things that have not yet happened. When we look at chapter uh, 2 and 3, we are looking at seven letters uh, that were written um, by John under the guidance of the Spirit to these seven churches. And as we mentioned as we were ending last time, the there were a lot more than seven churches. Uh, Colossae, for example, is one that was right near Laodicea, and it's not included. So why were the churches here called the seven churches? The answer, uh, we are convinced, is that these seven churches represent seven basic spiritual conditions of a lo local church in any age. In other words, the church that you attend, the church that I attend, these churches can be found in Revelation 2 and 3. And if we can identify the true spiritual condition of our church, then, of course, we have the one place where the Lord of the church gives his opinion about what we are really like as a church. This, of course, could be a little different than the pastoral staff might say or um, members of the congregation might say. But you would have the uh, 
Lord Jesus uh, declaring his viewpoint of, of the church that we're a part of. So we're suggesting to you that they were selected because they represent seven basic spiritual conditions of churches really in any age. Now, the format, um, as we have on page 21 in the little book on Revelation, they have the same basic format, and there are six parts. One, they begin with a description of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, which emerge out of uh, chapter 1, where John saw the vision of Christ. Secondly, there is a word of praise. Jesus looks at the church and sees things that he likes there. Third, there is a rebuke uh, for failures. That is, Jesus analyzes the church. Um, He sees things there that um, shouldn't be. And so there's, fourth, a statement of, of exhortation. You know, shape up, repent, do this, do that. Number five, the possibility of discipline, that if they don't respond to the Lord's exhortation, then they face his discipline. And then finally, there is a word to the overcomer. Um, There are exceptions to the basic format. Uh, Smyrna and Philadelphia uh, do not have any word of of, uh, rebuke where the Lord censors them for failure. And as a result, there's also no possible discipline that they're going to experience. The other exception is the church at Laodicea, which has no word of praise from um, the Lord Jesus. So we now um, want to look at a couple of of things. Um, One is the... um, promise to the overcomer. Each one of the letters uh, promises um, something uh, to the overcomer. Now, the word um, overcomer is the Greek word nekao, which means to be victorious, uh, to conquer. And um, this is where Nike gets their idea from, that if you wear Nike shoes and Nike outfits, you will definitely be a winner. You will conquer um, your opponents in basketball, football, whatever it may be. So nikao means to conquer. And so the but the question is this: Does this apply to all believers? In other words, it's positional truth, true of everyone, or is this something that focuses on victorious believers? Now. <clears throat> In a summary like this, we really don't have uh, time to uh, detail this. And I would point out that good people, good Bible students, differ on this. I personally believe that this is positional truth, that this is looking at a believer. So when it um, talks about an overcomer, it is talking about... um, the individual who has put their faith in Jesus, and because Jesus is the one who has been victorious, so are we. I base this primarily on John's use and description of this in 1 John chapter 5, 
and uh, verses 4 and 5. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To me, it would be unusual, strange, uh, if John would change the definition um, from 1 John over to the book of Revelation. Um, There's a lot of discussion here. And if you hold to the idea that this is a victorious believer, that it's practical truth, then what you are doing is focusing on the rewards given to faithful believers. But I do think that there are are issues that both views have to contend with. But one of the things that if you hold to this being practical truth, you really need to deal with certain promises like the one given to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 11, where you have he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Well, the second death is the lake of fire, as described later in Revelation 19 and 20. So the promise to the overcomer is no lake of fire for you. Well, surely he's not talking to believers who are faithful only. Would a believer who has not been faithful to the Lord in his life end up in the lake of fire? Most of us would say, not a chance that that's going to happen. So there are passages in the promises like that that really need to be answered. Now, when we look at these uh, churches, um, each one um, has a particular thrust connected with it. In the church at Ephesus, um, the Lord commends them for some wonderful things, um, that they are morally and doctrinally pure. They have not compromised with some of the latest uh, ideas morally that were um, going around circulating in that day. And they work hard for Christ. But the problem that Jesus has with them, that they have left their first love, which most likely is a reference to their love for Christ. So here is a church that is doctrinally solid as a rock, which Jesus really approves of. They have also shunned some of these moral compromises that other churches had embraced, and Jesus appreciates that. But if they don't uh, return back to their first love, then they will face the removal of their testimony. The second church, the church at Smyrna, um, is commended because they have um, remained absolutely loyal to Christ, and that was in um, oppos- when they're being opposed by the synagogue of Satan, which indicates uh, here to this church, as well as later on to the church at um, Sardis or, or Philadelphia, that um, 
you have an active, aggressive Jewish population in this city who are against the church. And Jesus commends them for their steadfastness and loyalty to him. And uh, he acknowledges that they may uh, continue to suffer, but he says that you're going to get the crown of life. There's a quality of life that's coming to you in the future kingdom. So uh, keep at it. And uh, there is no uh, reference at all to um, any sort of uh, judgment. The church at Pergamum um, is in the unique place, he says, where Satan's throne is, which seems to indicate that you're talking about a kind of of, uh, satanic activity and presence, which is maybe uh, not normal but um, they they've been uh, they have a martyr someone who's died for the faith um, but uh, Christ's great um, problem with them is that they have compromised uh, doctrinally or uh, morally they have uh, some who hold to the teachings of Balaam and of the Nicolaitans which we don't have time to go into, but basically those are moral compromises um, where um, probably a reference to an f- early form of Gnosticism where uh, the teaching was that spirit is good and needs to be cultivated. The flesh is basically evil and it doesn't make any difference what you do. And that would emphasize the um, um, why immorality became a part of their life. And so uh, Jesus says that they need to repent or he's going to come to them and make war against them. So they are going to be greatly disciplined by the Lord. This goes also a similar way to the church at Thyatira. In this particular case, uh, the leadership of the church apparently is not doing their job of um, making sure that the church is only being exposed to correct doctrine to healthy doctrine they have allowed a woman in who they call Jezebel who probably that's probably not her name but um, she says that she's a prophetess of God but the end result is that uh, she is leading people um, God's people into immorality and um, she is teaching them uh, the deep things of Satan in verse 24 of chapter 2. So um, Jesus warns them uh, that they need to stay away from Jezebel teaching because she will um, bring about great discipline on them. So keep pure, he says. Hold fast until I come. And um, the one who overcomes is going to receive things, but also... He says, the one who keeps my deeds, the one who's faithful, uh, they will have rulership with him in his kingdom. The church at Sardis in chapter 3 is a church that had a reputation for being alive, and they were not. Uh, They had a false view of themselves. They were a going concern. They had probably the latest programs. They did all kinds of things. But God looked at their hearts, and they are not alive. They are not spiritually uh, with it at all. They are, in fact, dead. And unless they repent, he's going to come as a thief comes suddenly and he is going to discipline them. 
the church at Philadelphia, found in chapter 3 and verse 7, um, is a church that has no censorship of them. Um, they have been faithful to the Lord. They apparently are not a, a big church. They've not been written up in the Asia Minor, Minor Christian Quarterly as one of the great churches of, a, of the day. But they have been faithful to the Lord. They have uh, worked with what God has given to them. They have resisted and overcome the synagogue of Satan, these uh, Jews who are, are anti-Christ. And um, God assures them that they are going to be victorious. The final church, the church at Laodicea, has a terrible view of themselves. They think that they're in good shape. They think that they are um, rich. Uh, they think that they are um, really have no need of what Christ is offering. And he tells them that they need to shape up. That Probably this church had a large number of unbelievers in it. And so he simply warns them that they need to uh, shape up um, or else they are going to uh, face his hand of discipline. So these seven churches um, take us through um, the basic spiritual conditions, really, of any church uh, today. And with the with that ending, we um, we then move into the third and final section of the book of Revelation, and we we are immediately um, faced with the identification of three different groups, um, and it's important that we go through this real quickly because these groups appear again and again and again throughout the remainder of the book of Revelation. So we need to try and identify them. The three groups are uh, the angels, and particularly the angels to whom each one of these letters is sent to these seven churches, and then the identification of the 24 elders, and then the four living ones. So the question that arises is that when um, the church, for example, at Ephesus is written to, it begins this way, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. And each letter begins that way. Jesus has already informed John in chapter 1 and verse 20 that the seven stars that were in his hand are the seven angels, um, are angels that, uh, to the seven churches. So the question that is debated is, are these angelic beings or are they human messengers? Because the term angelos is used a couple of times in the New Testament to mean messenger, um, human messenger. So what is it anyway? Who are these angels? Um, what we need to recognize is that uh, out of the, in the New Testament, uh, the term angelos is used uh, 175 times. Um, only seven times is it translated as messenger, 
and only a couple of times in Luke 7 and Luke 9 of a human messenger, and that is a reference to John the Baptist. And basically what uh, Luke is doing is quoting the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which translates um, angelos as messenger in reference to John the Baptist. But here's what we need to recognize, is that John never in his gospel, nor in his epistles, ever uses angelos that way of a human messenger. In the book of Revelation, angel is used 67 times. It's used eight times in Revelation uh, chapter 1, verse 20, and then introducing each letter in chapter 2 and verse uh, and chapter 3. So the word is used 56 times of holy angels and three times of fallen angels. So in other words, of the 67 times uh, in the book of Revelation, 59 times it's used of angelic beings. And so the use of the word in Revelation 120 and then the introduction to each one of the letters is in favor of the other references being to angelic beings and not spirit beings. Now, when you read about this, you'll discover that um, many times you'll have individuals saying, well, these are the pastors of the churches. But if that was John's intention to tell us that, he would have used the common word of presbuteros or episkopos, which is the are the two words used throughout the New Testament for the uh, person occupying the office of elder. And angelos is never used of the elder or the pastor. It simply is not used that way at all. So um, I think that you have to eliminate uh, the idea that this is an elder, or today many would refer to him as a pastor. So <clears throat> um, if these are really angelic beings, why are these letters addressed to them anyway? How did the angel get the message to the, the church? Well, one of the things we need to remember is that in the book of Revelation, angels have a key and active role in carrying out God's will, God's judgments, um, it starts with chapter 1, verse 1. How did John get the information that he writes down? Well, it comes through an angelic being. And I don't think that this is far-fetched at all, that you would have angels assigned to local churches. Think for a moment. It appears that angels are assigned to individuals. If we understand Hebrews 1.14 to be a reference to guardian angels, it's also very clear that angelic beings, both good and evil, are assigned to nations. You look at Daniel chapter 10. And so my question would be that why would it be out of place that angels are assigned to local churches as well? I would argue that they are not out of place at all that we might consider that these, in fact, are angelic beings that were assigned to churches, just as they are assigned to nations and individuals. 
Now, if you have your Bible and it's available, you might want to look with me at chapter um, 4 and verse 1. This is a very important verse. John writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet, that was the voice of Jesus back in chapter 1, in connection with the vision that John had of the resurrected Christ. The first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet, speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place. There's that idea again. What must take place, the certainty of events, after these things. Notice how verse 1 begins and how it ends with the same phrase. After these things. After these things. Now, what are these things? Well, the these things refer to the subjects, the things related to the churches that were given in chapters 2 and 3. After speaks of that which takes place following the events of the churches. So, the first phrase, there's that phrase metatauta, after these things, is used twice. And there are actually two sequences that are indicated. Sequence number one, that's the first use of it. Uh, After these things I looked and behold. Uh, It relates to the actual receiving of the visions. In other words, John is saying that he received the information found in chapters 4 through 22 after he got the information about the churches in chapters 2 and 3. So it it has to do with the receiving of the visions. And most people don't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, okay, I got it. John is simply saying that I got the information that uh, is recorded in chapters 4 through 22 after I got the information in chapters four, uh, 2 and 3. But it's the second sequence that becomes critical in our interpretation of uh, the book of Revelation, but also in understanding when the rapture event occurs. In the second use, John relates how the events will take place. Come up here. I will show you what must take place after these things. So the second use is related to the ev- how the events will actually take place. That is, the events spoken of in chapters 4 through 22 will take place after the time of the churches. The point, the church is no longer on earth when the events of the tribulation begin. And while it's not sort of the slam dunk uh, statement, when John says, come up here, um, I think it is symbolically um, uh, of the church being taken into heaven. Um, But very clearly, after these things, 
the events spoken of in chapters 4 through 22 will take place after the things, the time of the churches. And as a result, it's it's not a surprise that um, nowhere in the tribulation uh, chapters, chapters 6 through 18, that's 13 chapters, mind you, nowhere in those 13 chapters is the ecclesia, the church, found, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. None of those distinctive church terms are found in 13 chapters of the book of Revelation, even though the church is mentioned some 25 or 30 times in the book of Revelation, particularly the term ecclesia or church. And um, John obviously has the ability to use that term, but he never once uses it in chapter 6 through um, 18. So, John is now taken to heaven. And uh, in chapters 4 and 5, um, you now have this scene in heaven, which begins the third section of the book, the main section of the book of Revelation. The scene in the heavens is preparatory for all that is now going to take place. This activity that John describes is activity around the throne, and it takes place before the tribulation begins. How do we know that? Well, the tribulation does not begin until Jesus Christ receives the scroll and then begins to break the seals on the scroll. And so um, the tribulation has not uh, yet occurred. Now, when John is taken to heaven, the first thing that he uh, observes is this throne. And the, the, the word throne is used about uh, 40 times uh, in the book of Revelation. And it, it speaks of authority. It's a place where authority resides. It's not looking at some ornate chair. It is looking at authority. Three times out of that number, it's used for evil authority. We have, for example, mentioned the throne of the Antichrist. Evil authority, three times. Three times it will be used for delegated authority, that is, the the thrones of the 24 elders that are in heaven. The remaining times it is looking at the place of authority, the authority of God. God's throne is the center of uh, all authority in the universe. So <clears throat> the question then comes next. As John is in heaven, he sees the 24 elders. And again, it's one of those things where there's a, an awful lot of discussion on who they are. I would like to suggest to you that they are not angelic beings. They are human beings. And they are human beings uh, because the term that John uses of presbuteroi is only used of men in the New Testament. It's never used of angels. And I've often wondered as the churches, the seven churches who were the initial target audience 
of this uh, book of Revelation, how would they have understood elder? Basically, they would have thought of the position of authority within the local church. The elders are seen wearing crowns, the Stephanos, which is not the crown of a sovereign, but the crown of of honor, of rewarding. And it points to these as being rewarded individuals. Angels are never seen wearing crowns, the Stephanos, in the scriptures. The crowns, and we're familiar with that from Paul's writings and Peter's and James, uh, is, is a way that God is going to honor faithful believers. They'll get the crown of life, the crown of rejoicing, and so on. So it has to do with rewarding. So we're looking at rewarded um, uh, people and uh, rewarded believers. Um, the term presbuteros is used. So <clears throat> now this vision uh, in heaven uh, is um, prior to the second coming of Christ in chapter 19. Well, why is that important? Well, because the Old Testament saints are not rewarded until the second coming. You look at Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus comes back at the second coming, he will reward Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and so on. So these are rewarded individuals long before the second coming. Why 24? Well, that is a challenge. And m- most conclude that it's somehow connected with, uh, like with the 24 priests in the Old Testament, David set up the order of the priesthood, but um, that it's a number of representation. So I believe that it is best to see the 24 elders as representing the church, which is now in heaven. What about the four living ones? Well, they're mentioned next in chapter 4 as being um, individuals who are very closely associated with uh, the throne of God. They're very nearby to the throne. And as they are described, particularly in verse 8, as saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, this, of course, takes us back to Isaiah chapter 6. And even though they are not called angelas or angels, and they are seen as distinct from the myriads of angels, they are most likely an exalted order of angelic beings, maybe the highest order. They are next to the throne of God. They are highly intelligent. They are very powerful. And they not only appear to lead creation in the worship of the true God, but they are also deeply involved in the outworking of God's judicial purposes. In fact, when the judgments begin in chapter 6, we read, And when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, I heard one of the four living creatures saying, As with a loud voice of thunder come. So the four living creatures are very much a part of the coming judgments of God. So we are probably dealing with a very high order of created beings. Now, as you move through chapter 4 and into chapter 5, we're still in the uh, heavenly scene, 
And what catches John's attention there is that there was uh, in the right hand of God, the Father, the one who's sitting upon the throne, a scroll which was sealed. And it would have been sealed in the in the margins because as a scroll, the first seal was broken, the scroll would then uh, unravel to just a limited extent to be able to read what the judgment was. When the second seal is broken, the scroll has the ability to uh, unroll just a little bit more. But the scroll will contain all of the 19 actual judgments which are going to result in the defeat and the removal of Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and the return of the planet back to mankind in the person of Jesus, Messiah, Son of Man. The word goes forth. Who has authority? And there's a deadly silence in the universe. The problem seems to be that no one has the authority to take the scroll and execute the judgments. John understands the significance of that, and it simply is that the status quo remains. Satan will continue to be the god of this world, and he weeps. But then he is comforted, and one tells him, um, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. And this title, which goes back all the way to uh, Genesis chapter 49, back to Isaiah chapter 11, uh, references, of course, the Lord Jesus. So John is told, someone has been found, the lion lamb from the tribe of Judah. He has authority. And so there's great rejoicing in heaven because now there is the transference of authority to the Son to whom all judgment has been given. And again, that comes from John chapter 5 and verse 22. So the scroll is given to Jesus, the only one worthy, and he will now execute judgment upon the earth. All heaven rejoices. And you have... uh, um, the words of, of, of rulership and inheritance. He receives might, honor, dominion, glory. And uh, this transference of ruling authority uh, was seen back in Daniel chapter 7. Jesus made reference to it in his parable of the nobleman in Luke 19. Psalm 5, or excuse me, Psalm 2, uh, indicates that Uh, God the Father has already established his anointed one as king on Mount Zion. Psalm 110 tells us that when Jesus, uh, when the time is right, uh, the enemies will be destroyed and uh, they will be made the footstool for his feet and then he will rule. So now the time of Jacob's trouble will begin known as the tribulation period, Daniel's 70th week, the day of the Lord, the indignation, the birth pains of the Messiah. We know know it best by the term the tribulation. So Jesus breaks the first seal. And the first seal uh, initiates 
the judgments. Now, very quickly, why in the world do we need this terrible seven-year period of time? Well, the answer simply is that God wants to save his people Israel. That's why. And so the tribulation period is for um, Daniel's people, the nation of Israel. And God is committed on oath to bringing Israel into the new covenant. If you'll read carefully Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, you find that God says, I will, I will, I will, I will do this. Paul in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 27, makes it abundantly clear that um, Israel will uh, be saved. Um, Jesus makes it clear. I'm not coming back again, he said, until Israel sees me as Messiah and embraces me as Messiah. Um, Matthew 23, verse 39. And so the book of Revelation is built squarely upon Daniel chapter 9 and particularly verse uh, 24 to 27. The second purpose for the tribulation period after the saving of the nation of Israel, and incidentally, Israel will become the great evangelists for the world resulting in millions upon millions of Gentiles being saved as well. But the second purpose is to judge unbelieving men and nations. We mentioned that when we look at the tribulation judgments, we always need to keep in mind the concept of birth pains. And because when we understand that concept, we begin to see the pattern and the flow of the execution of all of these judgments during the tribulation period. Once birth pains begin, they do not stop until the birth actually occurs. And the birth, of course, is the birth of the messianic kingdom upon the earth. Another thing about birth pains is that the amount of time between the pains becomes shorter and shorter as the birth draws near. And third, the pains become more intense or severe as the birth uh, becomes nearer and nearer. And this is validated by um, the content within the book of Revelation itself. Now, we do not have time to go through all of these uh, particular judgments, but there are three series of them. Uh, They are known as the seals, um, the trumpets, and the bowls. And these uh, three series of judgments, as we have illustrated on page 37 in the little book, these judgments are all divine judgments. Um, As we tried to mention uh, and emphasize last time, uh, we need to understand what God is going to do and quit trying to uh, explain how he's going to do it. These are divine judgments. All of them are. And the first um, series is that of the seals, and they are noticeable. Um, The reality is that there's never been a time like this uh, upon the earth. Um, Jesus said it, and he was quoting 
of several of the Old Testament prophets when he said, there has never been a time like this before, there will never be a time like it again. And unless the days had been shortened, um, no human being would survive it. That's how terrible this period of time. Well, in the sealed judgments, uh, these are the less formidable judgments, though they are terrible. Um, when we get into the first judgments of the um, in chapter 6 of Revelation, um, we don't have time to go into the individual judgments, but uh, there are two things that I want us to particularly uh, take note of. Uh, the first one is that um, there is a body count given. Uh, the first one in the book of Revelation, in chapter 6 and verse uh, f- um, 4, excuse me, verse 8, that uh, in the um, fourth seal, that one-fourth, 25% of the world's population will die. Now, suppose for a moment that there's 8 billion people on the earth when the population, when the tribulation begins, the population of eight billion. One fourth would be two billion. And this isn't a matter of months. Can you imagine? Uh, can you wrap your mind around the, the sheer number of, of people who die? I can't. <laughs> that number staggers my imagination. So it, the death rate is horrific. The second thing to note is that in verse 8, when the authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, famine, pestilent, and wild beasts of the earth, if you will do a study, you will find that those four elements, beginning, you go back to Ezekiel 5, Ezekiel 14, that these are indications of the wrath of God. Why is that important? Because what it is indicating is that all, not just simply a part, but all of the seven years is the wrath of God. So um, that points to um, that the church is removed uh, out of the tribulation period before the wrath of God begins. And if all seven years are the wrath of God, if you look at 1 Thessalonians 1.10, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, we have clear declarations by the Apostle Paul that the church is exempt from the wrath of God. Well, Ephesians, excuse me, uh, Revelation, Revelation 6.8, those four elements uh, are have dozens and dozens of reference in the Old Testament to the hot anger or to the wrath of God. So this points to the fact that the entire period is in fact God's wrath. When uh, the final um, or the seal is broken, which doesn't occur until chapter 8 and verse 1, Uh, That initiates the next series of judgments, which are the trumpets. And we've illustrated that uh, in page 37, page 39 uh, in the book. The the, um, uh, seventh chapter is sort of like, uh, time out for a moment, folks. This thing is not all about judgment. It's about salvation. God wants to save people, and he's going to raise up 
144,000 out of the nation of Israel, who apparently are going to be the primary evangelists in the tribulation period. And so John uh, is introduced to them, and these probably will be the key individuals in spreading the gospel throughout the entire world. Jesus said in Matthew 24:14 that the gospel of the kingdom will go throughout the entire world and then the end will come. Everybody is going to hear the gospel. Everybody is going to understand what the issues are. Everybody is going to know that eternal life through Jesus Christ is available to all who will believe. Now, John is in heaven in chapter 7, and one of the elders introduces him, or at least shows him, a whole group of people wearing white robes. And the elder asks John, do you know who these are? And John basically says, no, I don't. And the elder replies, and this is important, in chapter 7, verse 14. He says, my Lord, you know, and he said, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And these are ones, he points out, coming out of uh, every tribe, nation, and tongue. So they're not the martyrs of all the ages, but they are, in fact, those who have come out of the tribulation period. Chapters 8 and 9 discuss the uh, next series of judgments, which are worse. The next series of judgments are the trumpet judgments. And here you have the echoing one-third, 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 one-third of what these judgments are going to bring forth, uh, and particularly the earth is attacked. Chapter 8 has the first four of the trumpet judgments, and they are terrible. You can only imagine if you read them carefully, what it would be like to have just one of those things take place. But I want you to notice verse 13. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying through mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. What's he saying? Well, what's he saying is that you ain't seen nothing yet. You think these judgments were bad, you just wait until the next three come along, the next three trumpet judgments. And they're going to be far worse. There's the concept, you see, of birth pains. The concept that things do get worse and worse and worse as time goes on. So um, chapter 9 then gives to um, the readers the next uh, two trumpet judgments, uh, which would be numbers 5 and 6 which have to do with probably universal demonic possession as well as just uh, uh, terrible activity uh, with one-third of the world being killed in, in a judgment, um, judgment number, uh, trumpet number six. So you have these last three woes, which are simply another names for trumpet judgments five, six, and seven. The, the seventh uh, trumpet and the third woe are the same thing, and they are also the bowl judgment. So you have three different designations, and again, we've got a, a chart illustrating that as to how that works. People can 
really get confused. So um, that chart on page 45. So these judgments now uh, issue forth with uh, tremendous consequences. Now, in chapter 10, you have this key chronological uh, indicator. John is told that he must prophesy again, and he is given a scroll to eat. And what's on that scroll is the information in chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14. And these are events, the two witnesses, the persecution of Israel, uh, more details about the Antichrist, and then what we call Armageddon. These uh, four events are given uh, more, we're given more information about them. And there's time notations given in those chapters to let us know that when John is told to prophesy again, he is not going all the way back to the beginning of the tribulation period. He isn't going back to the middle of the tribulation period. And you can read how we uh, have uh, perhaps developed that. So after John gives that additional information, um, which, by the way, uh, an important little notation uh, in chapter 11, which uh, I return to again and again, Chapter 11 and verse 14, the second woe is past. Well, the second woe is the uh, sixth trumpet. And behold, the third woe is coming. That's the seventh uh, trumpet. That is the bold judgments. And immediately after that is said, <clears throat> the seventh angel sounded. And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. What John is telling us is that with the blowing of the seventh trumpet, which is called the third woe, which is also called the um, bowl judgments, you now have heaven rejoicing. And what's said in chapter 11, verse 15 is what's said in chapter 19 in heaven, the Lord God, the Almighty, will now begin his reign, his rule over the nations of the, of the earth. And there is great rejoicing. So here we are in chapter 11, but Jesus doesn't come back till chapter 19. Well, that's because we're being given information that we need to know about future events. So <clears throat> the... Um, the John is being letting us know where we are chronologically. We're at the end of the tribulation period. Now, <clears throat> when you get to chapter 15, you have um, and 16, you now have the bold judgments, and the bold judgments are the final judgments. They are the judgments that will bring about the end of of God's. Um, judgments upon the earth. And so um, chapter 16 will declare um, this is the end. God's judgments are now complete. But it's fascinating to note that even during these final judgments of chapter 16, which are now preparing for the second coming, that three different times men were scorched with fire, fierce, fierce heat, they blasphemed the name of 
God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent. Three times. Which shows, by the way, the hardness of the human heart that left untouched by the Holy Spirit, you know, that's what you and I look like. If it weren't for the working of the Spirit of God, that's what we are like. We are God-haters. We, Even when we know it's God at work, we want nothing to do with Him. To the very end, unbelieving men refuse to repent, but instead defy the Lord God. Now, Jesus is now coming back. But we have chapters 17 and 18, and <clears throat> Jesus comes back in 19. So what are chapters 17 and 18? I think Robert Thomas in his excellent commentary on the book of Revelation puts it best when he says chapters 17 and 18 uh, should be identified as an extended content footnote. They are footnoting or explaining two statements in chapter 14 and verse 8 and chapter 16 and verse 19. See, in those verses, 14.8 and 16.19, John mentioned Babylon, but he never tells us what he's talking about. And so, in chapters 17 and 18, we now have an extended discussion about Babylon. And I think that chapter 17 is a reference to religious Babylon Chapters uh, chapter 17, Religious Babylon, and chapter 18, Political Economic Babylon. But what that does now <clears throat> is to take us into the, the great scene in heaven uh, where uh, we now have two things that take place, and I want you to be aware of it because uh, this is, I think, important for us to see. In chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, there is great rejoicing in heaven and there is preparation for Christ's return to the earth. And as we said, it basically was given in chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. The end has now come. But in chapter 19, we also have two events that are mentioned. We have the marriage of the Lamb in chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. Now note this, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What does that tell us? Well, that tells us that the church in heaven now has been rewarded. The judgment seat of Christ has now taken place. And now we have the marriage of the Lamb, where Christ and the church are now united. Where he goes, we go. So when Jesus comes back at the second coming, we come back with him. And then, after the judgment seat, the rewarding of the bride, and the marriage of the Lamb, then you have in verse 9, the statement, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper. I would like to suggest that the marriage supper, which was still future at this point, is the second part of the wedding ceremony, and it was, in fact, the um, 
the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus used that in a parable to illustrate his um, uh, millennial kingdom as a marriage feast or a marriage supper. So Jesus comes back at the second coming. We come back with him. We are the ones wearing white linen, bright and clean. And um, we have the um, judgment of the false prophet, the Antichrist. And then we have the establishment uh, of the Messianic uh, kingdom. And one of the things that we try to do in the book is to uh, discuss why a premillennial view, that is, Christ comes back to earth and then and only then is the Messianic kingdom established, that, that is, that's the only way that Revelation 20 reads. You can't have the amillennial view which has Jesus establishing the kingdom at his first coming. It makes no sense whatsoever with the text. You have to spiritualize things away. A thousand years Jesus is going to reign upon this earth. And one of the things we've included in the little book is an appendix at the end which makes it clear that numbers are not used symbolically as amillennialists try to say. They are used in a normal, uh, quantitative way and they're used that way in prophetic literature uh, and in the book of Revelation. And so with Jesus' return to the earth, and I should point out that sometimes people say, well, uh, John devotes uh, 13 chapters to the, to the tribulation and a few verses, very few verses to the millennial kingdom. Why? Well, the answer is really quite simple. John does not give details about the millennium because the Old Testament prophets do. They give volumes of truth about the millennial reign of Christ. John's contribution is the length of this reign, something the Old Testament prophets simply did not reveal. Then after the millennial kingdom is over, uh, you have Jesus turning ruling authority back to the Father, and you find that the eternal kingdom of God, which is ruled over by the Trinity, that the eternal kingdom of God um, will be on the new earth. Uh, God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and uh, it's going to resemble the old earth, with the exception that there are not 70% of the surface covered by water, which came from Noah's flood. No signs of judgment on the new earth at all. We talk about this a little bit, and I think it's reasonable when we go back to Genesis and understand what God was in fact intending to do. Well, that's our overview. Uh, And I'm hopeful that um, this little book on Revelation will walk the interested um, Bible student through the book of Revelation in a way that uh, there is a greater grip, a tightening of the grip on our understanding of this uh, tremendous final book of the Bible. Again, if you're at all interested in getting a hold of a copy, you could simply go to my website, paulbenware.com, and when you go there, uh, you'll find a, um, a way to get a hold of this book. I trust that the book of Revelation will become more and more 
significant and important uh, to you and that perhaps all of this study will help clarify some things uh, to our benefit and to uh, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, the coming judge and coming king.